I'd like you to turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm 15. The title of our discussion this morning is The Measure of a Man. The Measure of a Man. Uh, Earlier this, well, this past week, uh, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. To the chagrin of some and to the joy of others. I uh, somehow, did any of you ever notice like in your car radio, somehow you end up on stations and you're like, I didn't, like I didn't set this and somehow I'm listening to something I would normally never listen to and all of a sudden I'm feeling slightly addicted to what's happening. Uh, somebody put the fanatic on, okay, that's what you call people that are fans in Philadelphia and their sports radio station is called the fanatic. So I kind of got caught up in this whole thing about the, the NBA finals. My mom is a huge fan of basketball. Uh, at 80 years old, she has fallen in love with basketball. And so I was at her house the other week, so I watched the first game. Well, then you kind of get caught up in the drama, the story, the players, everything. And you're kind of like, it's a very interesting uh, set of circumstances with the teams that were there. Cleveland versus Golden State Warriors. It sparked a debate about what makes a great player. And the discussion was largely driven because of a name uh, of an individual who plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers. His name is LeBron James. Arguably the best player today uh, in the NBA and probably, therefore, in the world. But the question that everybody's debating, because this is what people do on talk radio, it is stupid conversation. I mean, it's it's really weird. People arguing about, like, the strangest things. But I was... I was one of those stupid people this week. And so is he the greatest player ever? Yes, he is arguably the best player today. Active. And so then the debate, well, how would you know? I mean, what measurement would you use to determine whether LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson? Or you could start naming all the names of great players. And the debate gets fascinatingly heated. Would you do it based on stats? Points scored, games won? Would you do it based on division championships or total championships? Would you do it based on their defense or their offense? Or would it come down to intangibles like their ability to lead the rest of the team? In other words, what what really would constitute greatness? Is it inspiring others around you to be their best? And the honest truth is the debate will go on and on, ad infinitum, into the realm of the ridiculous. And it caused me to think about the text I'm speaking about today. Uh, Psalm 15, which is a very succinct statement. I understand that it's probably more intended to be generically neutral, okay, that it addresses all worshipers of God, but it's a fascinating foil against which to look at men. Uh, It presents what I would say at some level is the measure of a man. And what it really takes by God's standard to be the man that is desperately needed in the world that we live in today. We live in a world where there is a deficit of greatness amongst men. And I believe there is also a great confusion about what makes a man great. What makes him stand out? We have a deficit of great men. Many men in America today, and unfortunately in the church, are AWOL from their family and from their wives. Many are present, but not accounted for. They're there, keeping their commitment, but it is sheer duty and not delight. And I would argue that that is not greatness. 
I was thinking as Matt was speaking and, and thinking about him coming today, and I thought, you know, how appropriate. Why do we need the vault ministry in Washington? Why? Yeah. If we had men in their homes leading as they should and moms leading as they should in the context of their home, we wouldn't need the vault. We need the vault because of a complete failure on the part of men in our culture. Why is Baltimore disintegrating? It's not because they need more money. It's because they need men. And it's fascinating to me that at the most secular level, it is agreed that what the inner cities of America needs today is not government. They need men. Men who will stand up and come off of being AWOL and report for duty, who will be present and accounted for, who will stand courageously. Because I, I, I've done a lot of thinking on parenting. I've taught on parenting a lot of times. And then when your kids become teenagers, you stop teaching on it because it's like a scary season. Because <laughs> you, you don't know if you have any credibility, okay? Uh, but I, my conclusion is this. If you want to be a good dad, if you want to be a great man, I think one of the things you need to make a decision about is being courageous. About having courage to speak truth into the life of your kids without always thinking about how it will be received and whether they'll be mad at you or whether they'll be popular. And I am largely convinced that for many, many, many parents, they want their kids to be more popular than they want them to be godly. And that, I think, is one of the saddest commentaries I observe. Parents shaving, compromising so that their kids can be accepted, not keeping them out of things they should be kept out of because you want them to be accepted. And it is a dangerous path that we are on. So my call this morning is to men, but it's to the church, it's to all of us. We're all called to be salt and light. And unless we pursue God in this sort of way, and we're going to look through five characters to kind of boil down the ten that are here, which fascinatingly have so many similarities to the Ten Commandments. Because it, it, you can always boil it back to what God wants uh, in terms of his word, his truth. that stands, that changes us, that guides us. And you always find there is a failure along the line of the most basic things that leads to a failure in the realm of family and then devastation for our children, which leads to devastation for the culture. And so if we are going to make a difference, if we are going to stem the tide and the drift that is present in the American culture, it must start at home. There is no substitute. No government official, no individual can meet all the needs that are present in the life of your kids. I thank God for people that stand up at the vault. Matt, you've won my heart, okay? Where is Matt? All right, I, you have my respect, okay, for living truth and doing what God said is true religion in James 1.27. I hope you will have our participation. Okay, because we can give you our respect, and that, quite honestly, can be very empty. So my question today, as a call and challenge to us as men, what measure will you apply to your life? And I'm going to offer Psalm 15 as just one measure. There are so many other things and texts I could speak from today. But since we're doing a series in Psalms, we're going to park here on this text to look for the measure of a man. <clears throat> it's a psalm of praise. Directed to individuals who are being encouraged to seek God. They are presumably people that already know God. They know something about God. And there is a question that comes on the lips of David. And if you know David's story, you understand why he's asking the question. 
David wants to draw near to God. He wants to go to temple, sanctuary. He wants to go to the hill of God where God's presence is manifest. That is the longing in his heart. So why doesn't he just go there? Why does he pull back and say, who can avail themselves of God's presence? Who can enter in? Who can enjoy a holy God? And that's the word that comes, your holy hill, not just a location, but a place that is marked by the presence of a transformational God. And why would David struggle? Why would he have to ask the question? Because he's just like you and me. He's just like us. He struggled with loving God and he struggled with loving others. Evidenced in adultery, offending his wife. Evidenced in murder, offending his fellow man. A failure to love God, a failure to love his neighbor as himself. And he would wrestle with this idea of grace that could forgive someone like him. And there is this desire to go and reluctance based on who he knows he is. The man in the mirror is a discouragement at times, right? To what we want and what we desire. But I thank God that the desire doesn't go away. On my worst day, I want to be close to God. But sometimes I live in isolation because of a breakdown in my own life. And so here's a key thought at the beginning, verse 2. After asking who can come and who can dwell and who can live on your holy hill, I mean, abide with God. Who can do that? If he is utterly holy and he sees through you like a glass house. Have you ever been around people that you just feel like they know you too well? They're so discerning that being around them is, quite frankly, uncomfortable. And David is standing, contemplating God's sanctuary, his holy hill, and he shudders at the thought. And he labors a question. And I would say <clears throat> that David here is manifesting what I would call a godwardly or decisively godward orientation. In the end of the day, the sinner redeemed David was a man after God's own heart. Now, it doesn't matter if you and I like that. That's just what God calls him. And God invites him, come, come to the sanctuary. And David said, how can I? Only by grace. Only by grace. And man, I would argue this morning, the only way you can even begin to look at the characteristics that will drift through this morning, the only way you can look at it with hope and not pure discouragement, that you can look at it with confidence and not feeling like a fail again, is by depending solely and completely on the grace of God. You must be a strong man in the strength that God provides. You can't do this alone. So I'm not trying to give you this morning helps to measure up. Okay? Because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to share with you the characteristics. And by the way, young ladies, if you want a resume for someone to marry, look at this text. Study this text. And do not sell yourself short. David says, here's who can come. He whose walk is, and this is like so discouraging, isn't it? He whose walk is blameless. And you're like, okay, I want to exit now. <laughs> he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. So what's the first characteristic? If I take those two together, I say, he is a man who is passionate about doing what is right. He is simply passionate. He is consumed with a desire to do what's right. And I would say that this is a conscious decision to intentionally, as I move through life, measure each decision, each circumstance, each encounter 
Not based on what will make people around me happy or what will cause people to like me. But what is what, what does God want? And to let that question drive us. It goes back then to Psalm 1, doesn't it? He delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night, presumably with the desire to do it and put it in practice. He is passionate about doing what's right. And I want you to notice this, this statement. His walk is blameless. And there is a distinct difference between saying that somebody's walk is blameless. Walk, the word you could use simply is their life. Not looked at in a snapshot, but the big picture. Okay? The Bible is very clear, isn't it? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. I stand before you this morning. If you have any illusions, let me destroy them. All right, I stand before you as a sinner seeking to sinners or speaking to sinners. That's what I am. Redeemed by God's grace, wanting to be used. Here's what God says. The person that enjoys my presence, my manifest presence. What David wanted to know was that he was close to God. And so what is he saying? He who's walk is blameless. It's speaking about reputation. And there's a difference between reputation and perfection. This idea of blamelessness, it's fascinating. It's the characteristics that you use to describe leaders within the church. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but when they mess up, they own it, pursue forgiveness, and in that case are blameless. And that blamelessness is never used as an excuse for sin, but it is pursued so that we can enjoy the presence of God. Okay, and he always does what is right. Which, and the indication is he's measuring his life decisions based upon truth that God has revealed. And I'm going to tell you, you can go back to the Ten Commandments and read through. And if you're discerning in your reading, you're not just looking at negatives. Okay, I, I use this illustration with the teenagers. I said, look, I could put a bowling ball in the middle of the table in our Sunday school class and say, it doesn't lie. It doesn't steal. It's never committed adultery. It's never thought of murdering. And all that would be totally true. See, every commandment is intended to drive you in a positive direction. Don't lie. Speak truth. Don't commit adultery. Be faithful to your wife. Do you see? Don't steal means be generous. Don't kill means love deeply. Okay, we, we are obsessed with a form of Christianity that is defined by negatives, and we feel good because we don't, we don't, we don't. And it's fascinating because out in the secular world, when I seek to share with people the love of Christ and the fact that they're sinners in need of grace, people will always say to me, hey, I've never committed adultery and I've never cheated on my wife. My first question is Jesus' question. Have you ever hated someone? Because if you have, you've committed murder. That's Jesus' words. And if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Every man in the house, guilty. Do you see? So when you define your life by the things you don't do, there's no difference between you and the tree standing in my front yard. It don't do those things either. But it doesn't make you decidedly passionate about God. And you got, we've got to get that as the church. I grew up in a church that was so conservative, I thought I was good because of the things I didn't do. Okay, and then you read Micah. What does the Lord thy God require of thee? To love justice and to pursue mercy. Well, that shattered my life. <laughs> I don't even like that. That's challenging, right? Because true manhood and the measure, it's not, you can't define yourself by what you don't do. You're defined by what you do do. God calls us as men to be passionate about doing what is right. And I, I say this to you 
with the challenge from Genesis 3. Because sin always, always, known and unknown, hidden and revealed, always leads to isolation from God. Always. Genesis 3, when Adam knew that he had sinned against God, he hid himself from the greatest blessing in his life, which was not the fruit of the garden. Amen? I don't like fruit, so I can say that very boldly. That wasn't the best part. And the people, they think about, oh, the garden of Eden, that must have been so amazing, so beautiful, so, and they talk about heaven and all the pictures and all the beautiful things. Folks, if that's what you're focused on, you don't get it. What drives the glory of heaven is God is there. And what drives the story of hell is he isn't there. And when you live a faulty life and when you and I are unwilling to confess our sins and to respond, since my wife isn't in here, as I had to two weeks ago to a rebuke from my wife that I deserved and needed. When I resist that, you know what I do? I live in isolation. I isolate from everybody. It's what sin does. Guilt drives shame, which breeds isolation. And God comes in the cold of the day to Adam and says, hey, your delight is here. Where are you? Folks, so if you're caught in sin, you're not blameless and you're isolated. That's what happens. You break off your friendships. You don't want to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. I've done it. And I've hated it. When you confess and you move back towards God, you come into his holy hill. How? By living a life that is blameless, not perfect, but progressing in the right direction. And God will begin to do amazing things in your life and bring you to the measure of man that he wants you to be. So that is verse 2. He's passionate about doing what is right. He has decided that he will not flirt with sin. Secondly, verse, second half of verse 2 and 3. He does what is righteous and has no slander on his tongue and casts no slur against his fellow man. So I'm talking about relating to God. I'm talking about coming into a sanctuary. And what is God doing? God's pointing behind me to the world I live in. You know what God wants to know? What are your relationships like out there? Because if you don't love them, you don't love me. It's that simple. You know what that means? That means if I'm not loving my wife, remember this category of neighbor, Jesus Jesus destroys all boundaries and puts everybody in the circle. He says, everybody is your neighbor. If I am treating my wife in a nasty way when I come to church, how do I feel? I feel hypocritical. I feel shameful. I feel like I really can't enter in with God. God is deeply concerned about how you and I actively relate to the world around us. Folks, listen. To not cast a slur and to not gossip and to not slander means to actively pursue words, Ephesians 4, that build others up. It means to, and not to avoid people that I struggle with. It means to enter into their lives and do what Jesus did. And we, we struggle with that. Because we'd rather say, well, I don't say anything negative. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you. I think the murmur of the church today is profoundly irritating. The undercurrent, the underspeak, 
the subtle undertone of negativism and things have never been this bad and on and on and on, we have become very critical of the world around us. You don't have to be smart to say to your friend, wow, things are really bad. It's not like, wow, good insight. But that is the murmur. That's the undercurrent. So it's why a place like the vault is where you can go and do what? Don't cast a slur. Don't criticize, complain about what's downtown. What about us getting involved in people's lives? Speaking truth and loving people. On the broader picture, too. You know, I'm a family man. I love my daughters. We text pictures all day long. Notes, letters, through a group text that we are all involved in. And I want to tell you something. It is very possible for Tim Hoff to worship family. It is very possible for me to make my life about being a good dad. And you know why that's a good pursuit? Because that makes me look good. And so I am all about that. If you know me, I, that, I love that. What's the danger? You know what the danger is? You want to be known as a good parent. But that's about you. What we need to become known as is good Christians who live out this truth on the broader picture of life to our neighbors, which Jesus expands the definition to a much broader picture than anything most of us have ever imagined. And yet we console ourselves because we're good parents. And you know what? You better be a good parent because God will hold you accountable for that one day but you better become a good neighbor too. Because that's the only way I can really enter in with God. And folks, here's what will happen. You start engaging with people and you will find your relationship with God changes because you go to him in desperate dependence because you can't do what you want to do helping others without the help of God. You need to know the love of God and the provision of God, the strength of God in order to be a conduit to the world that we live in where there is a desperate need for salt and light. May God help us to embrace what it means to love others and not pursue things that simply make us feel and look good. Third, verse four. It says, he despises a vile man. And now, this is interesting, because you're like, yeah, here we go. This is the one I was looking for. <laughs> this is what you've been talking about to people all the time, right? How bad people are. And honors those who fear the Lord. I'm going to guess that David gives us a, a couplet here, a contrast. That the, the decision of the mind towards sinful behavior is decided because he's blameless and righteous. He doesn't find any, and I think it's really the opposite. He does not celebrate the life of high achievers who have despicable lives. Okay, he's not attracted. He's not impressed by the success of a fraudulent man. Does that make sense? Because we live in a world that tends to praise the strangest things. We have entertainers who are utterly vile and despicable in their personal life and idolized by the country I live in, sometimes by us. He honors those who fear the Lord. Folks, who do you, who do you honor? Because honor means to praise. 
Who, do you, who would your kids say you would, what, do you, what would you say your kids think you really admire? That you are, oh, you are attracted to that. All right, so here's the list. It's probably intelligence. It's probably beauty. It's probably a high income out of college. Success out on the street. But honors those who fear the Lord. You know, God has done something in my heart in the last couple of years of who I admire. And it's shifted. It's shifted. It's not totally shifted. It's in progress, not perfection. But I've started thinking of church life in a different way. I've started thinking about faithful servants of Christ. I've started thinking about people who in their marriage have faced enormous and incomprehensible struggle from my perspective. I'm... You know my wife, I'm a blessed man. There are many things that I have to tell you. I can't relate. I've never gone away and worried about my wife ever. And I hope she's never worried when I'm away on a trip or something. I, I won't speak for her, but I will speak for my relationship with her. I have never been in doubt about the integrity of my wife. Ever. I started thinking about people who live a respectable life but are very simple. And so that's who we should be praising. We live, a, we live in, a, in, a, in a church age where people honor and praise. You know, when celebrities come to Jesus, let's bring them right up front and have them testify, which has proven to be so dangerous. What about the person around you that God's working in their life? Do you honor them? Who honors a godly man? Which means what? To praise, to admire. I admire people in our church that through horrendous difficulty have stayed true to God. I, I love that. And I think Jesus would say, look at that. Not that. Look at that. Verse 4 is the verse that I think unpacked my heart when I was reading this text and caused me to want to speak on this text. Second half of the verse. It says, he keeps his oath even when it hurts. I know, that just stuck out to me. Like that memorized immediately. I don't have a great mind. It's getting worse. But I'm going to tell you, that's a phrase that etched this text in my mind. I went, and I went the next day and talked to Ezra Martin. Dave, remember Martin Construction? We were talking about the church building. He said, Tim, I read this, this text, this chat, this psalm every day. He said, I sit at my desk and I read that psalm and I say, God, make me that man. I thought, you know Ezra Martin? You can tell by the name. He's, he's a conservative Mennonite in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And he is one godly man. And when he meets you, he doesn't have to tell you, I'm a Christian. I said, I said to him, I could have guessed. I could have guessed. By your demeanor, your character, the way you talked about business, your desire for profitability, everything about you. I said, I'm a Christian. I love that. Folks, that's how we influence our world. That's how we affect our family. That's how we fill the void that's missing in our culture. He keeps his promises even when it hurts. When it is costly and inconvenient. Do you, bet, do you look for a way out? For a contractual flaw? To get you out of what you promised? Or what you committed to? He keeps his promises when it hurts. That is rare in a world that is full of compromise and excuses. 
when I read this, I thought of Daniel. Chapter 1, when Daniel goes into Babylon and the whole world comes against him like a great press to push him, to shape him into a Babylonian as an 18-year-old young man. And the text of Scripture says this, Daniel decided in his heart that he would not defile himself. He took an oath before God, I will not participate in anything that honors another God. Wow. I think of you kids going to college, you will be in an enormous press. My daughters, trying to live pure, have lived in an enormous press that has mocked their convictions and values overtly in front of coworkers. They have more grace than me. Gentlemen, if you're married, I'm married 30 years today. I am humbled by that thought. Who am I? Do you keep your promise to your wife when it hurts? Well, what would that mean? That would mean when she's not satisfying your needs like you think they should be met, when she's not being the woman that you want her to be, because she wants to be the, the woman that God wants her to be. And you pressure it, pressure it. He made a covenant one day that said, I will keep myself for her alone as long as we both shall live. And that commitment is challenged for the average man on a regular basis. Okay? So do you keep your oath in a way that she is assured that you measure up to being a man? Do you play with emotionally opportunities? Or can she trust you? Are you decidedly a keeper of your word? If you're wondering if you are, ask your kids. My daughters have learned how to speak truth. And it's painful. <laughs> I thought of Jesus, who kept his oath when it hurt. Because it all goes back to Christ. All of it. John chapter 12 and verse 20, uh, 27, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Here's what he says. He says to them, he says, Now my soul, even the this is like six days before crucifixion. He says, Now my soul is troubled. I am grieving the thought of the cross. This is not Gethsemane yet, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. This is a week before the decisive move on Palm Sunday into the vicinity of Jerusalem, the holy hill near the sanctuary. It is there that Jesus senses the holiness of his Father and the sinfulness of man and that he must enter in on our behalf to bear our sin. And as he contemplates proximity in his human form to bearing the wrath of God that I deserve. He looked at his disciples and said, now my soul is deeply troubled. And what shall I say? I love that. What shall I say? And I see them all on the edge of their seat saying, I know what I'd say. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Oh, give me an exit strategy. Get me out of my word. He says, no. It was for this reason that I came to this hour. And, and I just love this next statement. Father, glorify your name. Now men, keepers of your word, 
even when it hurts. And oath before God, glorify your name. Because if you want to test to measure what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, and what comes out of your mouth, ask yourself, does it glorify God? Or does it exalt me and tear others down? That's typically the way that it works. Last thought is from verse 5. He lends his money without usury. And usury is simply this. It is loaning to someone in need and charging interest. Okay? Which essentially is to humiliate that person. Okay? That's the way it worked in the ancient world. You would put them in an agreement that would humiliate them. You know what's amazing? I live in a country where there's something called credit cards that do that all the time. All the time. And it's illegal. You live in a scary place. And you may be attracted to what those individuals that run those companies, companies aren't the problem, it's the people. You may be attracted to money. And this text, <clears throat> I think I can argue pretty clearly he doesn't lend his money with interest to someone who just simply needs it. In fact, he probably just gives it. And he does not accept the bribe against the innocent. He will not profit on corruption. So what's your standard? And that's the question we have to face. Context, money loaned to someone in need. No abuse, no taking advantage. And I think what it's really saying is something like this. Because, okay, he doesn't do that. That's, that's negative. That doesn't tell me what he is or what he's like. I think what he's like is this. His relationship to money is guarded. He is notably generous. It's, it's just a way of life for him. That's Jesus, folks. He died with nothing. They, they cast dice to figure out who would get his robe. That's how he ended his life. I have a dear friend who is very wealthy, has gotten payouts from his company. It's not anybody recent, okay? It goes, goes back a long time. Remember, he was getting a payout of a million dollars from his company, stock option. He said to me, my plan is to die with nothing. I said, wow. That's, like, really? <laughs> it was admirable and honorable. And I've watched him give and give and give and give. In ways that he doesn't know, I know he does. I read a verse a few years back about this honesty and generosity with money. <clears throat> and it, it, I'm going to share it with you because it is my illustration. It, it's kind of like from yard sailing, and I didn't know that Proverbs talks about yard sales. Okay, but I want you to listen to this verse about integrity. Okay, and isn't it interesting that God would touch on these areas, the tongue, because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if there's slurs, slander, gossip on your tongue, your heart is evil. And if you don't keep your oath, you're a double-minded man. And God's calling you to single-mindedness. And if you're not generous, or if you're slick in your financial dealings, always posturing things in the chessboard of life to maximize what you can get out of your employees without paying them enough or out of people in a transaction. You always, you, you are the deal maker. You're like Donald Trump. 
that did a scary thing this week, but that's a different issue. I want you to listen to this verse. Proverbs 20, 14. It says this. The person says, it's no good, it's no good. He's at a yard sale. No, no, no. It's a, it's a... And listen to this. Then off he goes and boasts about his purchase. You know what I started doing when someone's selling something? If it's, it is so, it's, you ever call it, this is an unbelievable price. Yeah, you know why it's unbelievable? Because that widow that's selling her husband's tools has no clue. That's why. And you should tell her the truth. That's what a man of integrity does. Here's what I do now to guard my heart, okay? I'll say to someone, you know that's worth a lot more. That's what I do. You know that's worth a lot more. Yes, I do. You can have it for that price. Okay, then we'll make a deal. And I'll go brag about it. Okay? But if you know that person is ignorant and you take advantage of their ignorance for personal benefit, you lack integrity. Well, it's the price they had on it. I've been in stores. Okay, I grew up in retail. I've been in stores where an employee mismarked the item. There's one I was buying. Good, holy cow, this is. <laughs> and I went to the front and I said, is this marked properly? That's what integrity does. Folks, that's the, the bend of the heart. It's not looking for personal advantage. That's not loving your neighbor. Ripping a poor widow off, getting her, her snap-on box of tools that's eight foot long for 500 bucks isn't transparency. It's theft. A man of integrity is going to say, you know what? I will keep my oath when it hurts. I'm going to tell this person the truth. I had that happen a few years back. Dave, remember I bought, that, I bought this whole wood shop. I said, guy, $2,000? His wife's standing there. He says, we're getting divorced. We want it out of here. If you give us two, we'll take it. I said, fair enough. I said, I'll, I'll take it for that price. I mean, it was $5,000, $6,000 worth of stuff. But I said, you know it's worth more. Yes. We're, we just want it gone. Okay. It's gone. I'll move it out. I'll take care of it. Folks, do you understand? Oh, it's no good, it's no good. Look at the deal I got. Memorize the verse, then go yard sailing. Okay? You come home and you tell your kids, look at the deal daddy got. That unfortunate widow had no clue. That's scary. That's scary and justifiable. Right? It all feels so right until someone points that you read the word and you're like, oh, it just turned. And when you did it, you knew it wasn't right anyhow in your heart. So the, here's the text that it's, it smacks you around a little bit. And if you're like me, when I read this list, I realized something. I realized I can't do this. I can't. This is like reading the Ten Commandments. It leaves me a needy man. Me needing the help of God, which is the best place we could possibly be. I love the last phrase. Here's what it says. It says, he who does these things, and I tell you, memorize this. He who does these things will never be shaken. He will always be confident in his God. Oh, will he ever face trouble? You bet you will. In this world, you will have trouble. But he who does these things, and, and the list should be lengthened, okay? And I, you could go on and on. You're right, yeah, I know, you can. You could. But he who does these things 
commits himself to a God-seeking life, seeks to be blameless, owns his sin, he who does these things will not be shaken. Meaning, your life will not be fraught with guilt. And you will know the presence of God. So that when you were attacked, now I'm going through a situation personally right now where I'm looking back and I'm saying, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? And you got to look back and not recreate the story, but uncover the story. He who does these things will never be shaken. Did Jesus shake at the thought of Calvary? Yes or no? Yes. He shuddered. He was deeply troubled. But he could say, Father, for this reason I came. What is that? That is confidence in the midst of the storm. Folks, that's what God wants to give to men. You know what the world needs today? We need unshaken men. And that is men who adopt these kinds of characteristics, who meditate on them, who memorize them, and put them into practice in their life, who then stand out as someone different. Listen, gentlemen, God's goal is not your perfection in this life. His goal is that you would experience progress. We use the theological word sanctification. He wants you to be a better man today than you were yesterday. That's his aim and work through the Spirit. So read the list. If you say, look, I, okay, I'm condemned. I, I, I am a guilty man. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that there is a Savior who went to the cross to bear the weight of your sin, your rebellion, your lack of oath-keeping, which is driving you crazy internally because you know it's wrong. And now you're looking for a resolution. So what do I do? Well, I start keeping my oaths for the rest of my life. Then I'm an oath-keeper, right? Well, for the rest of your life you are. But what am I for the other part of my life? I'm a sinner who needs grace. Do you see? See, transformation... By decision is not what God wants. What God wants is a total conversion, a regeneration by the power of his spirit. And when you come to him and you say, God, okay, you got me. <laughs> that text nailed me. I'm a sinner. Save me. Forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Christ that we have sung about. All I need is Christ. And you will find hope and confidence as you move into God's presence through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So my call this morning is, and hey, here's a list of things. Why don't you go try to do this, and you'll be a better man. You can go try to do this list. It will condemn you every time. Write it on your mirror in the bathroom. You want to have a depressed day every day? Write this list on your mirror. Put the Ten Commandments beside your mirror, too, if you don't feel bad enough. Okay, you try to keep them. They will destroy you. They will undo you, and they will drive you to your need for Christ. And that is the blessed disintegration that leads to regeneration. Girls. Ladies, Erica, see, take that resume and never settle for less. Be courageous. Live that list and pray to God for that list to walk into your life. Pray that that list would turn into flesh and bones and maybe even be handsome, okay? And you will be blessed. Young man, and some of you men didn't have an example in your life. I was blessed to be a second generation Christian. What I mean is my dad came to know Jesus out of a complete life of brokenness and was changed. 
He was about 30 years old. And God got a hold of his heart and God changed his heart and made him a different man. I have experienced the blessing of that. Some of you have never had that. I'm going to tell you something. It started with my dad. My dad made a choice to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. And you make an intentional decision in response to what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart this morning, and your life will forever be changed. That is the power and glory of the gospel. That's why you and I can comfortably look at the list. And everywhere it condemns, I plead the blood of Christ. That's Christian living. That's the measure of a man. Father, as we close this morning...